Hi, this is Edie. Welcome back to the Heinemann Podcast. Today we are going to revisit a podcast from 2022 on teacher mental health. My colleague Steph speaks with Dr. Chris Scardamalia, Associate Professor from the National Center for School Mental Health at the University of Maryland. If you enter teacher mental health into a search engine, you'll probably be met with a surprisingly short list of results. But teachers have long experienced high rates of stress and burnout, which have only grown in recent years. We wanted to take some time to address the long-standing and often overlooked state of teacher mental health in the U.S. Well-meaning approaches tend to miss the glaring issue of broken structural supports that leave teachers and their students with little to work with. Here now is Steph with Dr. Scardamalia. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I want to jump right in and ask you, when we talk about teacher mental health, what kinds of issues do you see coming up and what are the impacting factors? Yeah, it's a great question because the focus, you know, the, the recent focus on teacher wellness, self-care, mental health, there's a kind of all these different versions of it has been grounded in this talk about stress around COVID. But this has been an existing issue. It's been a bit under the radar. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And, you know, the, the sort of reframe of perspective right now is teacher mental health didn't become a problem during COVID. It was suddenly spotlighted during COVID. And, and the cracks that were already there in the system suddenly emerged. You know, I think of the, the education system as having been a bit fragile moving into that time, and we were not a system that was prepared to deal with a major crisis. Teachers work really long hours. They have high-stress jobs. They have an extraordinary amount of oversight um, and, at times, micromanagement. There are often mandates to, to meet certain standards, meet certain goals, without the funding, the resources, the training, really the space or room to, to do it right. So a lot is asked, not a lot is given. The stakes are high um, and they've only become higher. I mean, both from a um, kind of an official logistical standpoint, we go all the way back to No Child Left Behind and this idea that schools can be taken over by states if you're not meeting performance standards, right? So there's like huge, huge consequences there. But then just down to the, the, the softer, less visible consequences often of high teacher stress, poor mental health, and what that means for the day-to-day -day interactions with students, for the teachers themselves, um, and then overall for a profession. It, it's hard to convince people to stick around for 30 years when one year feels like 10. <laughs> um, so these issues have grown over the years. There's been a couple things that, you know, education has been doing right, but in a problematic way, right? So one of the best, best things about the American education system is the commitment to educating every single student. You know, there was a time in this country and um, still in other countries that you had to be considered educable to be in the system, right? We could just say, oh, you're not educable. Or mm, if you drop out, you drop out, not really our problem. Um, if you have learning differences, if you can't learn the same way other kids do, well, maybe you could go elsewhere, but again, not our problem. You know, since the early 70s, the American education system has said no, every single child. And I think that is noble, and I think that is where we should be, and I think that is absolutely a core value. If we're going to do that, we have to have a system that is resourced enough to meet the needs of every child, 
entering the system. So we're doing like we have the right idea, <laughs> but the execution has been really problematic um, and, and in different ways over the years. But teacher salaries have not kept up, um, although we want to provide more and more individualized instruction classroom size is going up. So I need to do more with an individual student. And yet I have more students sitting in my class with a wider range of needs. And and it's just become untenable. You know, what you're saying makes me think of a conversation I had just last night um, with a teacher in my life. I was telling her this conversation was coming up and she said, Steph, you know, I had to fail a kid this semester and it keeps me up at night because I know how much that's going to impact him. And it just makes me think about the severe amount of pressure that is put on teachers to be a, a make or break point for all of their students. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they feel that. They, I, I've never known a teacher that didn't feel that. Um, and that becomes that sort of softer impact, right? It's not as visible, but they are carrying the weight of their students home every single day. And again, when when kids are in difficult situations, and we know you know higher rates of poverty, higher rates of trauma, teachers are are feeling not not like obligated, like oh it's my job I have to do this, but as humans, I want want to help this child, you know I want them to feel better, I want my classroom to be a safe space for them, um, and and I want them not to hurt, and there's only so much control they have, and so teachers take on a lot. We also know that, you know, education is is critical. It's very, very hard in an adult life if you don't have at least a high school diploma. So the sense that this isn't just, you know, math class, this isn't just one thing among many things. These are things that are going to determine um, success and even opportunity for success later on in life. And it's very hard then to keep some healthy boundaries and, and to say, you know what? I've done my best and this is just what it was um, and not to take all of that in very personally and to feel very, very responsible for that. Again, that is an admirable, admirable approach, right? I think there's a lot of nobility in teaching and in teachers, but it takes a lot out of you to stay that present, to stay that involved with your students, to, to stay that even aware of what is going on in their homes, what they're bringing in with them, their own struggles. (laughs) Um, And you can't help but be impacted by that. You know, when I, when I'm talking with teachers, one of the first things, you know, we have to acknowledge is we are empathetic human beings. um, And the vast majority of people who get into education do so because they're helpers. They have a helping orientation and they're maybe a little more empathetic than even your average individual. And that's all really lovely and wonderful. But when you're a highly empathetic individual and you are sitting with student after student after student who is going through really rough times or having a lot of academic difficulties and worries about their future, that takes a toll. It's emotionally exhausting and draining. And if we support that, that we can work with that. But not just the past few years, but for a while now, we've been asking teachers to take that in, take that in, take that in go home, get a hot bath, and it'll all be fine, and not really attending to what it means to sit with that. So you said something a little earlier that really struck me, the idea of good ideas, wrong approaches. What are some of those wrong approaches, however well-intentioned, that have allowed 
the state of poor teacher mental health to persist and unfortunately get even worse. We have increasingly, and you know, there's a bit of a, there's a business model that has crept into education, right? And so we've increasingly asked the question, what is the least amount of money we can spend and accomplish this goal? How can we be the most efficient? How can we do the most with the least? That's fine in some business models, but in education, what that has led to is fewer resources, larger class sizes, and more tasks being put on any individual. Uh, And so teachers are spending an enormous number of hours outside of their teaching time, just entering data, grading papers, dealing with all the communication, and then this, the paperwork that has become involved in all of these various services. So I've got higher loads, more kids, and with more kids comes a greater range of needs. And instead of then having more supports, more teaching assistance, more programming, smaller class sizes, so that I can really work with each of these individual students, we're seeing the opposite. And it's larger class sizes, and it's more standards. And it's sometimes standards that don't make a whole lot of sense for my class, for my community. So there's this disconnect between what is being offered and what is actually needed. Education has this history, and I don't actually know where this comes from, of uh, we, we fall in love with a certain program or approach, and we do that for a year or two, and then, oh, we're on to the next best thing, we're on to the next best thing. And first of all, nobody gets great at any approach in a year, right? You, you don't do it the best you can ever do it the first time you've seen it. So it doesn't encourage this sort of deep learning and deep approaches. And then there's also just this fatigue that sets in. I, there's Several years ago, I was developing a new social emotional learning curriculum that was designed to fit within a classroom structure. And pervasively, when we tried to work with teachers or introduce this, it was I, not one more binder. Do not give me one more binder. <laughs> I'm done. And it's just an overload of new things to learn and new things to handle. And why should I bother if next year you're just going to bring in a different program? So I'll do what I need to do to get by, but there's no real reason for me to deeply invest in this approach or this program if it's not going to stick around and I'm not going to get continued support. This is a big one. We throw programs at teachers. We throw binders at teachers. We say, sure, we'll get around to some professional development, maybe in October, maybe in the spring semester, and then that's it. We know anywhere outside of education, right? The expectation would be there's continued support, there's continued consultation and an opportunity to get feedback, to better our skills and to be supported in um, whatever approach we're taking. You know, it's the new reading program. This is how I did it. What could I do better? But we don't do that. It's here's the binder, figure it out. You might get some PD and we're going to hold you responsible for the results and, oh, this was probably going to change in a year or two. So you can imagine just the, the utter exhaustion. And it's really hard to be good at something with that minimal of training and support around it. And we're, we're quite in love with this. If we just have a program, it'll fix a problem. And we've gotten more and more into that model. And what we know, what researchers know, what teachers know, is that the vast majority of learning and education boils down to relationships. Right? When we have good relationships, when we have time to develop those relationships and attend to those relationships, learning improves. 
all of that is interrupted by yet another new academic program. And, and not that we don't want to be concerned with academic intervention, because we certainly do in academic support. But I think one of the things we're not, we're still not quite connecting with is that in order for any academic improvement and intervention to really take place and be robust, kids have to feel safe. And relationships with teachers are a big part of feeling safe. And then on the other side, for teachers to really be able to stick in and invest, they need those relationships with each other, with the students. And that makes a huge difference. You can't do that when you're doing everything on the fly in 12-hour days. And I would have to imagine, too, a, a good relationship between teachers and their administrations and their districts. And I'm hearing this sense of, you know, not really being in control, just being given things and saying, do this, do that. How does that contribute? It contributes hugely. We all, you know, it is very, very common to see decisions that are being made about education, about educators, being made by, by folks who are not educators, have never been educators, and don't really understand what's going on. Teachers are, are happy to tell you <laughs> what the needs are and have lots of great ideas about how to solve these problems, but we're not asking teachers. So one of the things we've been working on, I'll introduce that first, is a tool to, to look at organizational well-being from a school perspective. So as a school entity, what is the well-being of your organization and how are you supporting folks in your organization? One of the key domains there is um, input, flexibility, and autonomy. I am asked my opinion. Um, I am I'm given the opportunity to give my expertise on what the needs are and what best approaches might be. And not only do you ask me, but you ask me before you've made decisions and you incorporate my responses into what happens. Um, and we are really allowing teachers on the ground to make those decisions and to at least drive policy to what we need. This just doesn't happen. And I think whether you're in education or not, if you just kind of think about if at your job, you didn't really ever have a say in over what your job was and somebody's just always telling you what to do, it's very natural to start to become a little disconnected and to start to feel a little less responsible. And, and it doesn't feel good. It just doesn't feel good. Um, so we know that input and autonomy are really key and it's not something we often attend to. Yeah. Hearing you use the phrase organizational well-being makes me think of some of the more common approaches that we hear about when it comes to teacher mental health. You know, I think we could call all of them self-care. Um, when you and I were talking earlier, you referred to them as self-preservation techniques which are helpful to a point, right? But it still leaves this poor structure intact. So what large-scale systemic changes would contribute to a true culture of organizational well-being? We have to rethink our systems. <laughs> so what this looks like is, you know, the frame up till now is, has been self-care, right? Go, go make sure that you're getting good nutrition and you're exercising enough and you're getting enough sleep and it's really on the individual teacher. Um, and just as you said, that only gets us so far. You can't be healthy in a toxic system. It, it doesn't work that way. So I can do everything I can do to take care of myself. And when I walk into a really disorganized, dysfunctional, toxic system, all of that goes out the door. So sort of the first next step that we've seen is, okay, we need to make time for teachers to engage in self-care. 
Um, and there's there's some utility in that, right? There There's some like, nope, we're going to give you extra planning time. And I, I talked with one district that they were then allowing Wednesday afternoons uh, for nothing to be scheduled because that was teacher self-care time. Okay, that's good. That That's a, a move sort of in the right direction, right? But that's still putting the onus on the teacher. So what we're called to do now and, and really challenged to do is to think from that organizational perspective, what does that look like? So that looks like, first of all, just resource and support. So we as a system are going to take on figuring out smaller class sizes, better compensation, you know, all of those just sort of logistics. We think of that as really the foundation. You need to be paid enough <laughs> to do your job. Uh, you need to have the resources and the space to do that. Beyond that, we have to, this gets into the relationship piece, but you have to feel safe within your school building. And there's there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. Um, the first thing that usually comes to mind is school safety from a physical safety standpoint. And that's important, right? And, and we want teachers to feel safe and we want our buildings to be safe, both from um, outside influences, from student behaviors going on, from parent complaints and harassment that might be happening. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's another side of feeling safe and that's that sense of psychological safety that when your administration, whether it's at a building level, a district level, a regional level, is either supporting or not supporting, this creates a sense of psychological safety. So when am I not safe? When I'm worried that if I give critical feedback, um, maybe there's a new program and I'm like, so this isn't really working. I have not been having a lot of success with it. And I worry about saying that because then I'm going to be the problem and, and the troublemaker. Right? So I can't say anything. I can't give critical feedback. Can I just discuss that I'm having a hard time? Can I admit that I, I made a mistake, not from a personal defensiveness standpoint, but knowing that I could go to a mentor, um, a supervisor, an administrator and say, I'm really struggling with this lesson or this thing. And somebody say, oh, great. We can help you with that. Absolutely. Instead of, hmm, we should probably be marking that down on the on the annual performance review, right? That you are are supported as a professional, trusted as a professional to make decisions and do the right thing. And that when we make mistakes, because we're all human and we do, it's seen as opportunity for growth and not as a point of uh, an opportunity for discipline and consequence, right? There's um, a real lack of trust in teachers in, in many ways. And that's, it's demoralizing. It's really demoralizing. So you trust me with your eight-year-old all day long, right? But you don't trust me to modify his math assignment to make it easier for them to do or, or you know, more accessible for them. That specific combination of high expectations and low trust seems like the kind of thing that could only come out of a highly feminized profession in a deeply misogynistic culture. Absolutely. When we think about how traditional gender roles operate outside of education, just in general, right? That, that it is typical to expect a woman to take on the cognitive load of a relationship or a household, uh, to be the emotional nurturer, to be the one to sort of keep track of all of that to sacrifice themselves for the better of others to make sure that others are taken care of. That's a pretty traditional gender role that is magnified <laughs> times, you know, three, five, 10 in a school building. 
And it is mostly, most of our public school teachers now and in the past are female. It is a heavily, heavily feminized profession. And that it is considered an expectation of your job to be nurturing from the moment you enter that building, not until the moment you leave the building, but until the moment you go to sleep, right? So that you're, you're answering emails late at night, you're up thinking about your kids late at night, you're doing whatever you need to do to support your, your kids late at night, because that's the expectation. And it's just sort of an expectation that sits in the background that everybody, it's like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. That's just how women are. It would be fascinating to me if we could ever see a, a public school system that was uh, the vast majority of teachers were male, if those expectations would be the same. Do you expect me to uh, be able to understand each student's emotional state and respond in the moment in an appropriate and nurturing and compassionate way? Um, or is it like, yeah, you do the best you can do. And if you get it right, you get it right. Or even more, that's not my job. Right. So just this assumption that women are caretakers, that school is about caretaking because kids are there and that that is not a supported part of the role. It's just an expected part of the role. And I think underneath that is the assumption that it doesn't take any energy out of that individual. There's no recognition of the amount of, of psychological, emotional energy that goes into giving that. And if you can't recognize that it takes energy to give that, you are absolutely not going to recognize when somebody has no energy left and they can't give it anymore because they're completely depleted. Right? And at that point, then we just start turning on the individual. Oh, they used to be a great teacher. They just don't care anymore. They don't care anymore. They're just handing out worksheets. And we take it as that person is no longer valuable Instead of saying, wow, that person used to be really invested in their students and they were super creative with their lesson plans and they were really working it and they were amazing. And now I see them phoning it in every day. I bet they're burnt out. Wow. We need to, we need to help. We need to intervene. We need to, not because we need a consequence, but we recognize it as a signal of a need for support and somebody who is starting to break down and is just sort of doing the best they can to survive their situation. But all of that would start with us recognizing that to be the nurturer does take mental and emotional energy. Yeah. And I, I really love your point about that's the consequence of it being just an assumption of something that will just happen without support. So have you, have you seen some examples of, you know, whether it's schools or districts really implementing that support uh, successfully in a structural way? I have. Not a lot, but I have. <laughs> um, and, and even pre-COVID, um, I went back when I was a school psychologist, I worked in a, an elementary school and I always had multiple schools, but at this one of these five schools I was working with, where the principal was um, had a very, very strong sense of responsibility for her teachers and her students and worked very hard to take everything off a teacher's plate that she could outside of teaching. Like your job is to be in there with the kids and teaching. I will find a way to get you help with paperwork. I will schedule your meetings for you around your schedule. I will make sure that you have coverage. I will run interference with parents 
And when I get a complaint about something or other going on, I am not going to immediately assume that in fact, that is a valid complaint and that, you know, you made a mistake as a teacher, but I am going to spend time addressing that with the parent or the concerned individual. And I'm going to protect you from all of that. And you will only hear about it once I have done my job and my homework to say, okay, is there actually a problem that needs to be addressed here? And then I will set a time to sit down with you, not grab you during your planning period on the fly, but in a respectful way, say, hey, let's schedule a time to talk. This is what's come up. How can I support you in this? This was, and and, and I can I can hear the thoughts, right? Like, oh, I really wish we had the time and energy to do that. This was a Title I school with an extraordinarily high poverty level and a really challenged student body. Our, our students were dealing with a lot walking in the door. And there wasn't a lot of money for things. So this wasn't a well-resourced district that was able to just sort of make this happen through cash. This was a committed principal who believed her number one job was supporting her teachers and protecting her teachers and allowing her teachers to do their job. I've worked with a couple principals like that. They're amazing. And you feel it when you walk in the school building. You feel it when you talk to the teachers. It is a whole different atmosphere. And teachers in that atmosphere feel encouraged to to stretch and grow and try new things and really bring life to their lessons and and try creative things with their students. Because if it doesn't work 100%, that's okay. They have an administrator that's, that's supportive of that and would rather see them try and flourish and grow than do what you've always done because it's going to be a problem if you don't get it right. I have seen other systems that um, more recently, actually, we have school-based mental health clinicians that are there to help students. Um, I've seen several districts extend that to teachers. There is a model in Texas that, that is still ongoing that the clinicians working in the schools are not school employees. So there's a, a level of confidentiality there and they work with students, but teachers are also able to schedule therapy appointments with this individual whose office is on campus. They can go before school. They can go after school. They can go during a planning period if that's what they want to do. So many teachers have taken advantage of this. They saw absenteeism plummet. They saw academics increase. They had teachers saying, I have always wanted to go to therapy and and I haven't been able to because school schedules don't work well with that. And I can finally go. I can actually have the time to go. And that didn't take a whole lot extra, right? You already had the mental health clinician that was in there to help support the student body. The space was provided and the service was opened up to allow others to take advantage of that. And I've seen a couple different versions of that. And not only does it provide concrete help for teachers, it sends a very strong message from the administration to the teachers that we care and we're willing to do something to help. So I think we've talked a lot about what the core issue is, or what the many core issues are, um, some possible approaches, which I would like to talk more about. What is the impact of not implementing potential structural changes? I think, you know, something that we're seeing increasingly is teachers are quitting. Yeah. So the, the number one impact, and certainly right now, the most present is teacher retention. Teachers are not wanting to stay. They have hit breaking points that between the low salary, the high demand, the lack of support, 
And then just the general sense that teaching is not a valued profession. Why am I sticking around? So we've got a retention issue. We've seen dropping numbers of students enrolling in education prep programs. So selecting education major and and a bachelor's program, for example, or other preparatory programs. So we know we have fewer uh, students entering the pipeline to become teachers. We have teachers who are leaving. And um, first-year teachers are, particularly over the last few years, much less likely to stick around because they're walking into a system that's on fire and like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to be the situation. And they're wanting to disengage pretty quickly. We know that um, pre-COVID, we were seeing um, that 10% of teachers leave after one year, 17% of teachers leave within five years, and in urban districts, up to 70% within the first year. So economically, it's a problem because in any profession, new hires are the most expensive, right? You've got to bring them in. You've got all the startup. You've got all the training. So when we constantly have a new crop of teachers, A, we're just financially at our our worst point because we're having to pay for all of that. We're losing um, the ability to to really have a cohesive group in a school. Um, There's something really wonderful about being in a school with a group of teachers who have been there years together. They're a well-oiled machine. They are able to support each other in a way that you can only do after you've worked together for a long time. I know so-and-so style. I know who to go through for this, you know, and you can work cooperatively. You can't do that when every year, you know, a quarter of your teachers are new. Even programming, it's really hard to institute new programming when you're constantly having to train new folks coming in. So there's a lot of promise and restorative practice approaches. But it takes a while for a program like that to really to to become part of the way an institution operates. Nearly impossible if you have major teacher turnover every single year. On top of that, now we're seeing veteran teachers leave the program, leave education at alarming rates. We're losing our institutional wisdom. We're losing our teachers that have been there 10, 20, 30 years who have deep, deep knowledge, and who at this point are really masters of their craft. They were mentoring the younger teachers. Um, Our veteran teachers are are absolutely key in helping to to train and support our younger teachers. They're leaving. And no disrespect to new teachers. You know, I think we can all say, yeah, absolutely. People have been doing a job for 20 years, have something to offer to people who've only been doing the job for a year. What we're getting now is we're going to have schools full of first, second, third year teachers who are struggling on their own without that layer of veteran mentorship to help them go through all of this. And then teaching staff that are just going to turn over year to year. So that's all logistical and that's bad enough, right? This all creates stress um, within a system. And we know that teacher stress strongly and directly impacts students and student behavior and student learning. So there was one study that they looked at reported levels of teacher burnout and cortisol levels in students. And teachers who were reporting higher levels of burnout had students with higher cortisol levels. Now, there's a bit of chicken and egg there, right? But the bottom line is stressed out teachers have stressed out students. That's not a great place for learning. We know that teachers who are really stressed out are quicker to consequence quicker to remove a child from their classroom versus trying to work through a couple things. It's like, I can't deal with this. I just need you out. 
tend to respond more negatively to mistakes, right? Kids are kids. They're going to make mistakes. Part of teaching is using mistakes as opportunity to learn. You can't do that when you're stressed out and you don't have the mental space. So teaching becomes less deep, less creative. Students are less supported. They're stressed out more. And it just becomes this really difficult cycle to break. The only logical place to interrupt that cycle is to support the adults who are struggling so that they can then support the students who are struggling and we can get things back on a more even keel. One of the more, um, I think, interesting meta-analyses over the last many years, um, and this is specific to social-emotional learning, but we can take some lessons from this, that there was a a large meta-analysis that found that schools that implemented social-emotional learning did no other academic intervention, no other academic intervention. Test scores improved on average 11 points. So we saw a significant increase in academics. Graduation rates went up, attendance rates go up. Did we do academic intervention? No, you know what we did? We supported the social emotional functioning of our students and our teachers. So I would suggest that teacher well-being and mental health is where you have to start. That's the foundation. You can't do the rest of it unless you have that. When we talk about teachers who are quitting, which communities are being impacted? the most? So I think unsurprisingly, the least resource, the most stressed. Some recent surveys are suggesting, and we'll see what happens in the fall, but right now when we ask teachers, do you intend to come back in the fall? Do you tend to stay in the profession? The reports are somewhere around one in four teachers are saying, no, I'm not coming back. That increases to about half when we ask teachers of color. And they just say, I I can't, I'm not coming back. Um, We have a very white teaching force. We have, we have, it's much whiter than, in fact, our student body. Um, and so we already have lower numbers of teachers of colors and we do students of color. And now we're losing a number of them, a larger number of them. Urban communities, we already know, have a higher rate of teacher turnover and lower rates of retention. Rural communities can have their own challenges uh, where it can be very, very difficult to recruit into the system. One of the regions I'm working with right now is a very rural region, and um, we're having conversations that in 20 years of education we've never had before, which is, we have many. We actually have many. We have nobody to hire, right? There's nobody to bring in. And so rural communities, just because of lack of, of people to draw from, are very strongly impacted. So it is our most needy in many ways that are impacted the most with high turnover and low retention. Yeah, you know, even here in New Hampshire, um, we have had a number of schools over the past 10, 20 years close in our rural communities, partially due to, you know, whether it's lack of funding, they can't pay teachers enough, or just they're, there's just a lack of available teachers. It's, it's really devastating. It reminds me of two different districts. One is a state, one is a district that that have had this problem. So there's a district that I've worked with in Maryland that borders two other states and those two other states pay much better. And this particular district um, usually has positions open. So they tend to get new teachers in, they get training, and then they're hireable and they, you know, go 20 minutes away to one of the two other states that will pay them significantly more money. One of the states I was talking to said their real struggle is that it's not just that their 
pay is lower than the surrounding states, they have a higher uh, a higher number of lawsuits on average than other states. Uh, yeah, so so not only am I going to get paid less, but I my job is nearly by definition going to be that much more stressful. Like we can't attract people. Why would you come here when there are plenty of other options around? Um, and this is that that tension that has been in the school system all along, and and in particular since Brown versus the Board of Education. Who are we going to educate and who gets to be in the building together and who gets the resources and who are we attending to and what do we expect of certain schools? It's been one of those sort of undercurrents that there's this sense that if schools want to be doing well, they can do well. So if schools aren't doing well, then they must not want to. And that is then assumed to be a characteristic of the students and the parents uh, within that that attendance zone, right? The students that go to that school. Um, this was one of the major, major mistakes with No Child Left Behind is they started from this idea that we had a level playing field, that all schools were at the same starting point. They failed to recognize that a lot of schools were still struggling with just meeting basic needs and we had the same metric for everybody. And then when the schools who were well-positioned met that metric and the schools who were not well-positioned did not meet that metric, we, you know, this is, it's that meritocracy. It's that sense of, well, if you wanted to do well, you could have done well. You would have figured it out. You know, my experience was within a single district, I could be on one side of the town uh, in a wealthy area. And not only were my students well taken care of and they had small class sizes, but there was a tremendous amount of funds for all these little extras. So I was sitting in a meeting once talking about a child who had a high need for movement. And they're like, oh, we can just get them one of those tall desks that has the swing bar and all these like amazing uh, tools and supports. Same district, 20 minutes across town. And I'm in a school that the previous year was holding a class in the hallway because they were out of classrooms where students may not actually have textbooks. Not every student is going to have a textbook. Not every student is going to have pencils. Um, and we're just talking about basic needs, right? And, and that's within the same district. So we have the same funding structure and yet we see these inequities and that is magnified as you start looking district to district then and sometimes state to state. Yeah, I, I can really see how it's almost this endless loop of, well, if you wanted to, you would, so therefore we don't have to, you know, and really, really just ignoring the, the structural piece of this. So as as we wrap up, let's let's kind of look forward. <laughs> um, very broadly, I'd like to know, you know, what does the future of teacher mental health look like? And that's a really broad question. So maybe I'll just pass it off to you like that. Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I do think there is some room for optimism, acknowledging it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of systems change. However, as we have seen this past year, and I, I think in many ways this past school year was more difficult even than the 2020 school year, um, as everybody was coming back into schools, having not been in schools, carrying in all of their trauma, carrying in you know everything that we've been through, the last school year was, was really brutal. And I expect next school year will be very difficult. 
as hard as that has been and not to minimize that, it has really highlighted that there are issues in our system that are that our system is in many ways broken, right? That that it's we cannot move forward. And so we have opportunity, right? There is opportunity in crisis to rebuild some of these systems and to start from the ground up saying, no, we need to start with relationship building. We need to start with supporting teachers. It has really only been in the last year or two that I've started hearing this idea of maybe adult social emotional learning is where we should start and then teacher social or student social emotional learning, right? Um, So we're just sort of starting to get this idea that we really should be supporting educator mental health. The other switch I'm seeing is a little more willingness and, and, and the need's always been there, but school's just saying, you know what, we're just going to do our thing. <laughs> like, we know what's needed. We're just going to do it. Right now, we just need to take care of our teachers the best way we know how and make that our priority. I think those are positive shifts. Um, and I think as long as we can keep rolling in that direction, we do have opportunity to correct some of the imbalances in our systems, to build not just a workforce, but, but a whole system that is uplifting for those who work in it and those who go to school in it, right? That, that is a, a place of creativity, that is a place of innovation, that is a place of learning, it's a place of acceptance. It's a place that I feel valued, that I feel like I belong. And why wouldn't we want that? We think about as a nation, right? If, if, you're, if you're part of a tech company, you're CEO of a tech company, and you're looking for folks to hire, right? Who do, who do you want to hire? You want to hire somebody that can be creative and innovative and autonomous and, and you know, do all these great things and stay up to date with the latest technologies. So that's, that's the workforce we need to produce, right? So... Moving toward um, schools being just good places to be. I think one of the essential tensions is this idea that for some, that schools are reading, writing, math, that's it. It is academics and academics only, and schools are not the place for social emotional learning, for mental health, for counseling, for all these other things. And That is an idea that exists only in theory. The reality is you can say that all you want, but (laughs) our teachers are being counselors and social workers and case managers and all this other stuff. And the sooner that we embrace that and make that work for us and not against us, we will build a better education system. I think it's 100% within our capability um, and within our grasp. If we can truly value education, not look at it as, you know, what is, what is the least amount I can possibly pay for this, right? Like, that's great when you're going shoe shopping. It is not so awesome right? when you're trying to produce students that have a good critical thinking and, and great skills to, to move forward and, and, and do all this wonderful stuff in the future. My dad always says, spend good money on a pair of shoes because it's what supports you, <laughs> you know, and we need right? to spend good money on this, on the structure of education to support our teachers and support our students. So it's a really like beautiful thing to, to look forward to and um, very inspiring to, you know, to hear that it is happening. It is starting to happen. 
absolutely hearing more out of the federal government than ever before. Um, and not just hearing, um, I mean, I, I've heard the president actually mention school psychologists like a dozen times now. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never heard school psychologists referenced by any sort of major national political figure before. So that's exciting. Um, but there's funding, you know, it, there's funding that's coming along to try to figure all this out. It's a bit of a conundrum right now. Like I've said, it's like, okay, great. We finally have funding um, once we no longer have people to hire. But I think we have that opportunity at least to say, okay, we're now recognizing the importance and we can start building back in a better way. Our thanks to Steph and Dr. Scardamalia. To learn more about National Center for School Mental Health at the University of Maryland, visit blog.heineman.com.